Good morning. We have a sermon called YOLO, JK, LOL, BRB. That is the name of the sermon today, and for those of you who understand abbreviations, you know why we called that that, because Jesus, as we studied last week, was buried in a tomb, and today we're going to talk about the reality that our God is alive. Amen? Amen. Spencer's ready. So I'm excited for multiple reasons this morning. I love this time of year. I love the book of John. We're about to finish the book of John in two weeks. Can you believe it? We started this when Noah started on the ark. That's how long ago we started this letter. I love the book of John. I love this season. I love Christmas season. I love that I'm going to a Warriors game tomorrow. Woohoo! But you know what I love most? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hands down. Because every Sunday, in fact, every day is Easter, church, because he's alive. For me, it was this event that made Christianity make sense. It was the understanding of not only that this happened, but the evidence that this could take place and did take place cemented how I see God, how I see God's word, how I see the world that he's made and the people that he's created in his image. I'd say for me, the resurrection of Jesus has done more, of giving, more than just giving me access to God through belief in Jesus, it's given me a confidence to live this life for Him and Him alone. Now, do I do it well? No. But because He's risen from the dead, because He's alive, because we know this to be a fact as a Christian, we can live in such a way that when we fail, we repent, we turn back to Him, and then He continues to grow us to look more like Him. The reality is that the resurrection means that God exists. The resurrection means that he could write this book. The resurrection means that what he says goes. And my hope for us today, as we gather today to hear the truth of the resurrection, that it would permeate into all facets of our lives, that the way we live would live in such a way that we understand because he's risen, we can get through today. Amen? And it's on that truth that he is alive, that he is resurrected, that we stand and are unshaken when trials and difficulties and storms arise. But just for a moment, as we get into this text, I want you to think about what the disciples and Mary Magdalene and Jesus' family might have been feeling after Jesus was put in the grave. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who had been accused, tried, and convicted of blasphemy, even though he was actually 100% innocent. Jesus was flogged, he was mocked, he was spit at, ridiculed, and nailed to a cross where he would eventually die, and these disciples had had a closeness with their teacher and leader that I don't think any of us truly understand, but for over three and a half years, they had followed and learned from him daily. While Jesus was pretty clear about who he was, not all the disciples at the time understood to what extent this man who they followed, who claimed to be the son of man, that he really was the God of the universe in human form in front of them. And after Jesus' death on the cross, it would seem apparent that Jesus wasn't who he said he was because God can't die in their minds. The disciples and followers of Jesus have just spent the rest of Friday afternoon, Friday night, all day Saturday, and Sunday morning grieving and mourning the fact that Jesus lay in a grave lifeless and possibly seen as defeated, because his claims were not backed up, because death is final as far as everyone knows. 
Today, that theory will be put to the test. As the Bible written by the Spirit of God using messed up people who had been with Jesus to write what happened after Jesus' death and burial. And I really don't know if any of us can truly understand how the disciples and followers of Jesus felt in these moments and days, but I know most of us have had a loved one pass. And if we haven't, we will, because death is something that every person will have to deal with at one point or another. Death feels final. Death feels unnatural. Death feels empty, disgusting, and without hope. But church of the living God, today we will study how the death of one man healed the sin problem of a people and was cemented, proven, and justified by the resurrection of that same man, that God-man, who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. I'm going to try not to preach at 10,000 RPM the entire time today, but this story, this portion of Scripture, this event is a world and life changer if we would embrace it, and I need us to recognize what a cosmic difference maker that this can make for us. Even 2,000 years after it happened, that souls of, of men and women and children, no matter their past, no matter their mistakes or their upbringing, can be changed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we learn today is that Jesus changes everything if we would simply humble ourselves and receive the news that Jesus is alive. So let's go. Verse 1 of John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. We pick up where Pastor Chris left off last week. Jesus has been buried, had been where, uh, he had been in where everyone assuming was his final resting place. And Mary Magdalene, a faithful and devoted follower of Jesus, went to the tomb early that Sunday morning. It was still dark. It was quite early. And from the other gospel accounts, we see that Mary's reasoning for going to the tomb was to anoint the body with spices and perfume so the body wouldn't decay or smell awful in case others wanted to come see it. Luke 23, going into Luke 24, says it this way, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. As you may notice, Luke points out that it wasn't just Mary Magdalene, but it was the women. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, as Matthew puts it, go to the tomb. For some, that becomes an inconsistency, but just because John points out that Mary Magdalene was there doesn't imply that the other Mary wasn't there. But as we have pointed out throughout the book of John, as we've studied this letter, he has a specific perspective and a purpose in what's he, what he points out and what he emphasizes in Scripture. And I think often when we read different gospel accounts and people hear about what they claim are inconsistencies, they're really logical, but for a lot of us, we don't think about it that way. In all the gospel letters, it is noted that Mary went to the tomb and found the stone, which was probably close to two tons, rolled in front of the grave, had now been moved out of the way. For a moment, I want you to think about just that. There was a stone, a lot of times we see it as this circular stone that had been carved from the mountainside, and 
it's put in front of the tomb. It's 4,000 pounds, and it's been rolled away. And to be honest, in and, that in and of itself is a miracle. But we skip over that pretty much every time we read the story. See, it wasn't described how it was rolled away. But in no way do I think that this had been done by people with levers and, and different ways of trying to move it out of the way. I believe this was God intervening because it's so quiet about what happened. This God-man who had been beaten, who had been unable to even carry his cross, who eventually would die hanging on that same cross, had been resurrected, and Jesus, who never seemed to use his own power for his own advantage in a human sense, now had physically moved a stone away that even the biggest guys we know couldn't budge. Verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Mary then ran to Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, also known as John, the author of this letter, who didn't want to make this story about him, and he rooted his identity in the reality that Jesus loved him. Mary's response is one that I think every single one of us would have. She assumed they, whoever they were, probably the ruling authorities, had taken the body of the Lord. Now, for a moment, this is going to be a little morbid, but I want you to think about this. Imagine that I had passed away. Imagine that my body was, was put into a casket, it was placed in a grave, and a few days later, you decided, well, okay, I kind of missed him, so I'm going to go to his gravesite to talk to his tombstone or mourn his death. And as you walk up to my grave, you notice that there's a lot of dirt spread near my burial site. So you begin to run towards the tomb to find that there's a hole in the ground and my cas casket is open. And as you look down into it, I'm not in the grave. Would your natural inclination be, well, obviously Tim rose from the dead. No, we're not going to think that. You would want to know who and why someone would grave rob me. And this is exactly where Mary Magdalene went in her mind as she found the empty tomb. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Verse 4, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> Look at John. For all eternity, we will know that John beat Peter in a race and obviously loved Jesus more. Kidding. But John and Peter's reaction was another natural one. Even though in the first century, it was undignified for a Jewish man to run. They didn't care about any of that in this moment. They didn't care about the culture. They wanted to see for themselves if what the women had told them was true. Real quick apologetic. Remember why this letter is being written. John chapter 20, verse 31. We actually get to study this passage next week. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. John's motive for this writing was that the reader would know that Jesus is the Christ and that life could be found in his name alone. And the resurrection account and truth is one that must be received in order for one to be a Christian. So if you've come here today and you don't know Jesus yet, we really want to introduce him to you. We want you to understand who Jesus is, but if you've come here today and you claim that you're a Christian, there's one thing that is required to be believed in order to be a Christian. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, 
later on in the passage, we'll understand why we put so much emphasis on the resurrection. Uh, spoiler, because the Bible does. But the reality is that you must believe that Jesus rose from the dead, or you're just a pretty nice person who goes to church, but you're not a Christian. The resurrection is a must-believe when it comes to being a Christian. We don't get to second-guess this or even wink at it. If God is who He says that He is, then He rose from the dead. Let me say it a different way. If Jesus can rise from the dead, then He is who He says that He is, and those go together. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, chapter 15, verses 13 through 14, it'll be on the screen. This was the passage that messed me up when I was a 19-year-old antagonistic atheist making fun of Christians. I thought you all were crazy. But then I read this, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And I'm not saying I was brilliant at 19, no offense, Calvin, but the reality is that at 19, I was so sure Christianity was fake. You know why? Because of how I saw Christians. And then I read this passage and I thought, well, if you're going to write a book to get people to believe a specific thing, and you really, really want people to believe it, then you're not going to tell people how to disprove your belief in your actual book. But Paul did. Just disprove the resurrection, and you got us. We're wrong. And yet, here's the great thing about the resurrection, I, and I tried. You can't disprove it. The reality is that Jesus rose from the dead. A little bit more on that in a moment. See, Paul puts all his eggs in this Easter basket, pun intended, you're welcome. And the resurrection, if it didn't happen, those who claim Jesus Christ have a placebo faith. If the resurrection did happen, then the power of God is real, then the Word of God is true, then God is who He says that He is. Here's the unfortunate thing for many, many, many people who call themselves Christ followers. They might believe in Jesus. They might think He's a great teacher but they act like he's still in the grave. Listen, friends, we don't worship a dead God or a prophet. Let the Mormons and Muslims do that. We worship a living and thriving and reigning king, and his name is Jesus Christ. Whew, okay, 10,000, get down to 7,000. So back to our narrative in John. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that his resurrection is true. So why did John state that Mary Magdalene, a woman, was the first to find the empty tomb? Now, real quick, I, you just need to hear this. I'm a big fan of women. I have five of them in my home, okay? Wife, four daughters. But in this context, in the context in which we're reading, the culture in which we're paying attention to, a woman's testimony in the first century would not hold up in a court of law. And if you were going to leave something out, the gender of the first person to find the empty tomb would be one of those things that you didn't want people to have see because then they could question the validity of your testimony. But there's a rule that I live by when I read in Scripture something culturally that was frowned upon but was included anyway. Here's what it is. John included that the women were the first to find the empty tomb. You know why? Because that's what actually happened. That's why he left it in. There's no better reason than that one. So back to John beating Peter in a race. Verse 5, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. 
John saw the strips of linen. The wrapping of the body had been discarded because Jesus' body no longer lay in this grave, and yet John didn't go into the tomb. And any assumption to why he didn't go in would be conjecture. Because Scripture is quiet on this, but look at the contrast of John's slow and possibly respectful posture when it came to the grave of Peter's more bold and ready-shoot-aim approach. Here's what it says. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Of course Peter did. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Why is John being so specific about the linens and the cloth? Many believe this was to point out that this was not a body that was stolen by grave robbers, but a resurrected man who took off the linens intentionally to leave the clue that he was no longer in the grave because he walked out of it. Verse 8, finally, the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside, and he saw and believed. John, after seeing Peter go into the tomb, followed him. John saw the linens and the cloth lying there, and instead of assuming someone took the body, John saw and believed, but believed what? The word means to think that something is true, to imply trust to something. And I think in this moment, John began to believe that Jesus' body wasn't missing because someone stole it, but because Jesus had defeated death. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was there when Jesus spoke often in parables and analogies about the fact that Jesus would die and rise from the dead. So look with me at Matthew 17. This isn't much of an analogy or a parable. He's just stating fact. This was quite a while before he actually went to the cross. And with the disciples in the audience, he said, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man, which is how he referred to himself most often in the Gospels, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life, and the disciples were filled with grief. I mean, Jesus is pretty clear here. The disciples knew he referred to himself as the Son of Man, and yet the passage points out that they were filled with grief. My assumption to why they were filled with grief? Because they stopped listening after Jesus said, and they will kill him. And that's what I mean, that some of us live like Jesus is still in the grave. Because I'm not filled with grief because I know, I read ahead, I know what happens I know what I've experienced. I know the apologetic of meeting with Jesus every day because He's not a dead God or a ghost. He is a living being who actually gave me His Spirit so I could follow Him. The idea of Jesus rising from the dead to defeat death, while seems very obvious to us because maybe we've done church, we've heard this story before, we live in a post-resurrection world, was not clear or understood by a first-century Jew. Because their focus was on the nation of Israel, the nation ruling and reigning, and did not understand that Israel was the people of God under the king of the kingdom of God who would rule and reign by sacrificing himself and rising from the dead. This was the ultimate victory spiritually. But most were still focused on the physical conquering of an army rather than the king ruling and reigning through sacrifice and resurrection. Verse 9, 
In parentheses, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Now, when they speak of Scripture, they're pointing to the Old Testament, the one that Jesus constantly spoke about and pointed back to, and yet Jesus was writing New Testament if the disciples knew it or not when they wrote down what Jesus said. But these disciples, Peter, John, the other disciples, did not understand when they read these things in the Old Testament that was written hundreds, if not thousands of years prior to Jesus' birth to Mary. In Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush Him and cause Him to suffer. And though the Lord makes His life an offering for sin, check it, He will see His offspring and prolong His days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in His hand. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will restore us that we may live in his presence. In Psalm 16:10, written a thousand years prior to Jesus' birth, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. But these disciples did not understand in that moment when they could not see Jesus' body in the tomb but they would understand. The apostles, the disciples who would become apostles that would be sent by Jesus, would understand because at Pentecost, where the early church was born, when Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, said this in Acts 2, 22 through 28, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, by wonders, by signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This is not seeker-sensitive, but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead and you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Peter then goes on and he says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. In fact, his tomb was really close to where Peter was preaching. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his very descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. The disciples eventually got it. But as we will learn next week, for them it required many of them to see Jesus for the Holy Spirit to uh, come and indwell them, for them to fully understand all that the Scriptures, all the Scriptures that Jesus had even pointed back to, taught and what they meant, and how important it was that Jesus sacrifice Himself and resurrect from the dead. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. 
Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now, there's two angels, and, and one of the gospel accounts says that there was one angel. And my question is always, if there were two angels, was there also one angel? Yes. Yes, there was. And it is assumed that John in particular went back to his home. He started to tell others that Jesus was alive. But Mary Magdalene stayed at this tomb. She was crying. She was grieving that Jesus had died, that that Jesus' body was no longer in the grave. And the supernatural sighting of two angels were there as she looked into the grave. And here's what it says in verse 13. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. She was so distraught that these angels probably didn't look any different to her than some other random men because she was so sad that the body of Jesus had been stolen. Verse 14, at this she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Now, people try to attempt to explain in a way why she didn't recognize Jesus. Maybe it was her grief. Maybe he just looked so different that he was unrecognizable. But according to Scripture, Jesus was flogged, and, and Scripture alludes to that. But when he is resurrected, he is this glorious and put-together man. Some think that maybe it was the early morning lack of light. And I'd contend that the reason she could not recognize who she was looking at, which was Jesus, was for the same reason that Luke points out in, in uh, his gospel. In Luke 24, it says, as they talked after Jesus had resurrected, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and lo- walked alongside them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So like the disciples, Mary may have just been kept from recognizing him for a moment. Why? I don't know. But when she realizes that it's him, she reacts the way that all of us ought to react when we fully understand that Jesus is alive. And what difference it makes for us spiritually that if he can defeat death, then I'm with him. And I inherit what he earned. So verse 15, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Once again, Mary doesn't really recognize who she's talking to. She thinks that he's the gardener and says, please, if you've taken him, please tell me so I can go get him. Mary has the sweet devotion to Jesus. She doesn't want his body to be misplaced. She wants him to be at peace in his resting place. Verse 16, Jesus said, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni or Rabboni if you're Italian, which means teacher. And this scene, this scene is kind of beautiful. She's worried about his lifeless body. Now she has recognized that her Savior, who is no longer in his grave, is no longer lifeless, is no longer dead, and she yells out, Teacher! The theologian John Calvin points out this is where he points to John 10, verses 3 through 4, where it says the gatekeeper opens the gate for the sheep. And the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. This represents the effectual call of God to his people. 
By name, Jesus calls out to Mary, and she recognizes his voice. Church, some of you have had this experience. It wasn't necessarily an audible voice calling your name. Maybe it was, but it probably wasn't. But you experienced God's beautiful gravitational pull where your affection for Jesus was stirred, where you all of a sudden knew that God was real, that He loves you, and that you can be His. Some of us haven't experienced this. We've heard the gospel and we've thought, well, that sounds nice, but I'm not ready, or I'll get around to it. But let me encourage you, when the gospel takes root, when the good news that Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose from the dead so that we could be in right relationship with God, when that takes root, when the voice of the good shepherd is heard, there is no sweeter sound, no sweeter grace, no sweeter gift than God calling us out of death and into life with him. Verse 17, Jesus said, do not hold on to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. In Matthew's gospel, the, the note, uh, he notes that the women clasped their hands onto Jesus' feet and worshipped him. But I also think that what Jesus intended to point out, where he's telling them, hey, go tell my brothers, is that they should not just worship him while he's in bodily form physically before them, but that he will leave, he will ascend, and that they are to go and tell the other disciples that he is going to be with the Father in ascension, not in death. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary then made an announcement that she had seen Jesus and also shared about his eventual ascension. Next week, we're going to continue where Mary left off of the sightings and the proclamation that Jesus is alive. And one of the most compelling arguments for me that the resurrection is true was not a video of a resurrected Jesus that went viral or some conspiracy theory that was explained, but if the eyewitness reports of seeing Jesus alive after he died are true, then you would expect those who claimed to have seen Jesus alive after he died to have changed and been transformed because when a dead person is alive, it changes the way you view the world. And they walked with him. They ate with him. They talked with him. He lived among his people whose reaction was one of transformation and boldness that was not seen until this event took place. For me, I can just testify to you what I know. And what I know to be true is that a carpenter's son in the first century, born of a virgin in a barn, lived a life that was pretty uneventful until he turned about 30. He began to teach and heal people around Jerusalem, and then after he, there was a following of his, the religious and governmental authorities did not like his message or the attention he was receiving from the Jewish people. A plan was devised to accuse and convict and execute this makeshift rabbi for claiming that he was God. And the largest injustice in all of human history, Jesus was flogged. He was ridiculed, and he was nailed to a Roman cross. He was buried, 
in a rich man's tomb after he died on that cross, and on the third day, his body was not found in the tomb. And let me say something, an empty tomb by itself proves nothing, but an empty tomb with actual sightings that Jesus was walking around and alive, and those people's transformation, once they started to claim that that was true, that starts to build a case. Arguments have been made that maybe the Roman government stole the body, but their main motive was to not have people follow Jesus. And without a body, some could believe that He resurrected. So at some point, if, he ha- if they had stolen the body, they would have just shown the body and said, don't follow Him, here He is. Some claim that the disciples, including Peter and John, stole the body and then started to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. But we know what happens to the disciples for claiming that Jesus is alive. They all get martyred. They all get killed. John, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, they tried to throw him in burning hot water and it wouldn't hurt him. And so they put him on Patmos and he lived there out the rest of his life on Patmos, writing the book of John, writing first and second and third John, and writing the book of Revelation. But these men at any point could have recanted and they didn't because a dead man was alive and that changed everything for them. And we know that after this passage that we read today that the world was changed and flipped upside down because of some scaredy cat disciples who now had seen Jesus alive after He died and were transformed into bold proclaimers that Jesus was the Messiah. Don't take my word for it. Read the Scriptures. Look and see if Jesus has changed people around you. I don't think that's placebo because if it's placebo, it means He's dead. But if He really rose, the transformation, not just in our lives, but in the disciples' lives, is a great example of why we trust that the Messiah is alive. We preach the Bible at Church of the Valley. We have nothing else to preach. That's what we preach. We open this. We try to explain what it means. That's what we do. We believe that the Word of God is the truth of God. We believe the Bible because Jesus rose from the dead, and the Bible does the best job of describing why. And we see that in this passage and throughout all of Scripture, how important the resurrection of Jesus really is. So I have a quote. It's kind of nerdy. It's by a nerdy uh, apologist who I appreciate and I've gotten to have lunch with, and he's brilliant, and his name's Gary Habermas, and he puts it this way. Well over 300 verses are concerned with the subject of Jesus' resurrection in the New Testament. We are told that this event is a sign for unbelievers, Matthew 12, John 20 as well as the answer to believers' doubt, Luke 24. It serves as the guarantee that Jesus' teachings are true, Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 15. And it is the center of the gospel itself, Romans 4, 10, and 1 Corinthians 15. Further, the resurrection is the impetus for evangelism, Matthew 18, Acts 10. It is the key indication of the believer's daily power to live the Christian life, Romans 6 and 8 and Philippians 3. And the reason for the total commitment of our lives, Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection even addresses the fear of death, John 11, 25, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 58, and Hebrews 2, and is related to the second coming of Jesus, Acts 1 and Revelation 1. Lastly, this event is a model of the Christian's resurrection from the dead, Acts 4 and 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Thessalonians 4, and provides a foretaste of heaven for the believer, 
Philippians 3, 20 through 21, and 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. We preach the resurrection through the Word of God, not only because it's the point of our faith, which it is, but we preach this because the Bible emphasizes this everywhere that we read in Scripture. So what do I want you to know today? What do I want you to do? What do I want you to feel with what we have taught? Here it is. If you've heard nothing else, Jesus is real. Jesus lived. Jesus died. And church, Jesus rose from the dead like he really did. Arguments can be made all day for all things. The world is flat. People can do that all they want. But the facts and the response of the disciples is there. Jesus rose from the dead, appeared to many witnesses, he ascended to heaven, and one day he'll return. For most of us, the gospel of good news of grace gets whittled down simply to this. Jesus died for our sins. And yeah, that's true. He did die for our sins, but there is a comma, not a period. Jesus died for our sins, comma, and he rose from the dead. So let me relay what a very large mentor of mine once said, don't leave Jesus in the grave, church. The good news is that Jesus traded his life for ours, and then because he is God, he victoriously rose from the dead. So we don't worship a dead God or a statue or a memory, but a living and resurrected king. The message of the gospel that I want us to remember and celebrate and be in awe of today is simply this. Jesus lived the life that we couldn't, he died the death that we should have, and he physically and victoriously rose from the dead. And if Jesus can defeat death, I'm with him. And I hope you are too. Malik, would you come on up? Kevin, come on up. I'm going to end with this. Some of you guys have heard the story, but as I was praying, I was like, how do I want to finish this? Well, I want to tell a story because I think that's what you do. <laughs> uh, I grew up atheistic because my, uh, my dad was antagonistic, agnostic, my mom uh, was adopted into a Mormon family. Uh, my mom died when I was eight, and uh, it made me really angry towards a higher power if there was one. But I remember when I was like four, we were driving on the 210 in LA, and my dad, who was an antagonistic agnostic, he and I are in his car, and we're driving on the 210, we're going to Fedco. Anyone remember this place? Yeah, boy, Fedco was way better than Costco, just saying. And we were on our way to Fedco, and I remember looking out to the San Fernando Hills, and there was a mission. And on the mission, you know it's on top of a mission, it's a cross that's lit up. And I'm a four-year-old, and any of you who have had or have been four-year-olds, which I'm guessing is all of you, uh, you remember, you all ask a lot of questions. And as we're on the 210 and my dad's 63 Mercury Comet convertible, I look over and I see this T and I go, Dad, what's the T? And he goes, that's a cross. And I go, what's a cross? And my dad, the antagonistic agnostic, goes, well, a cross is what Christians believe that Jesus died on. And I said, who's Jesus? And they said, well, Christians believe that Jesus was the Son of God who, uh, who lived uh, a few thousand years ago. I said, what's God? And I just kept doing this to my antagonistic agnostic father. 
And over some time, as he and I talked, it was interesting because without meaning to, he started to share the gospel with me if he wanted to or not because of the questions I kept asking. Well, 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 what's God? Well, Christians believe that God was, uh, I, I highly doubt he had a good Trinity theology, but he probably said Father and Son, probably left out the Holy Spirit, poor Holy Spirit. And he, he described that the Son, Jesus, uh, lived amongst Jewish people, and then he died on that cross. And then I said, well, why did he die on the cross? And well, because people thought that he was claiming that he was God. But you just said that he was God. Yes, but that's, and I just kept asking, I kept asking. And here was the last question I asked. Dad? So, he's dead? Well, yeah, yeah I, I mean, Christians believe that he rose from the dead. What? He rose from the dead? Well, that's what Christians believe. Oh, okay, can I meet him? My dad said no. I'm here to tell you, you can. You can know him. You can follow him. You can experience resurrection power, not because there's inflection in my voice or tears in my eyes, but the reality that God has changed everything. You know why? Because he's not in a grave. He's risen. And so as we worship in song, as we prepare to have three baptisms outside in warmish water, <laughs> sorry guys, Love you, Mike. Thanks for trying to make it warmer. As we celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive, if you know this to be true, if this has changed your life, as we worship, as we all stand, would you sing like it's true? Would you give God praise this week because you know that He's alive? Let's pray.